Any parents that have children ages four to seven, you can dismiss them to stepping stones. And I've heard a few little ones in here. If they get a little noisy and you want to take them out but still follow what's going on, we have two self-serve nurseries down the hall, and you're welcome to use those. The book of Malachi is a book of confrontation, and confrontation can be uncomfortable. But it is not confrontation based on condemnation alone, but it is confrontation as a form of rescue. God is calling the people to change, and this is God's mercy. So far, as we've been looking these weeks at Malachi, God has confronted the priests and the people of Judah first with their dishonor of God by offering blind and lame offerings, their questioning of God's love for them, They're turning away from God's word. They're marrying outside of Judah and then divorce. But there's more. We continue our study of Malachi today looking at another disputation speech. So if you would, remain seated and let's read together from the screen, Malachi 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Let's read this together. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say... How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. There we go. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now you might wonder why we're crossing a chapter boundary in today's sermon with today's verses. Remember that when the Bible was first written, there were no chapter and verse divisions in each book. Those divisions were added later for our study of the Bible, and usually the chapter division occurs at a change of thought. Here, it does not. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is another disputation speech. That's what the Bible scholars like to call it, and it takes this form. God makes a statement. The people challenge God's statement in some way. This is where the dispute comes in, and then God gives a defense or an answer. 
Now, before we look at the dispute, let's take a few minutes to remember the circumstances of the people of Judah. And I shared this in the first sermon on Malachi when I was giving background. So first, the Jews had returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding area after exile, and they found it desolate and overgrown. The land had not been touched for 70 years. So they came back and they rebuilt. They rebuilt the temple, but with opposition and delays. They rebuilt the city walls of Jerusalem and the gates under Nehemiah's leadership, but again with opposition. They were a vassal state to Persia, which means they did not have self-rule. They were facing a drought and crop failure. They had unfriendly neighbors It was the unfriendly neighbors that had caused the delays in building the temple. Thank you. It was the unfriendly neighbors that had stopped, tried to to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the city walls. Because they were a vassal state, they had to pay high taxes. This next one is very important. There was just a partial restoration after the exile. And here's what I mean. God had spoken through the prophets like Isaiah, before the exile, of a time of great blessing, a time of restoration. And the people thought it should be now. But the people either did not realize or remember that the blessing was conditional on their obedience and their repentance, and they had not repented. So in summary, life was hard, It was a day of small, hard things instead of a life of comfort and success. Now, we're looking at their circumstances again because their circumstances, I believe, have much to do with what the people are saying in verse 17, why they're not happy with God. Well, let's begin with God's statement. God says, you have wearied God with your words. Now, here God is speaking to all the people. Now, think about that word wearied. I think every parent understands this idea, okay? It implies regular, constant, or repeated words and attitudes from the people to God. Words and attitudes that are not pleasing to God. So we're looking at an ongoing kind of a situation here. Now remember, too, what I just reviewed at the beginning of the sermon. God has already confronted the people about their empty worship, about questioning God's love for them and disobeying God. Well, the people respond to God's statement with a question. They ask, how have we wearied God? And you can be sure of this, they are not looking for information. Okay? From the tone of the book, the whole book, I take their question as a dispute. It's a nice way of saying, no, I haven't. You say, I've wearied you? No, no, I haven't. But then we hear more of the people's words that weary God in their challenge in verse 17. They say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, you ought to go, when you read that, you ought to go, what? What is he saying? What are they saying? They're saying, Oh, the evil people, God treats them as if they're good. And then they ask, where is the God of justice? Or it's better understood this way, God, where is your justice? 
Where is it? Now, you can see the two parts of their challenge. There's a statement and a question. And I believe that both parts relate to their circumstances and are connected to this saying, if you put up the slide. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Now, let me just pause here and say this. You and I and the people in Malachi's day don't just respond to our circumstances. We respond to our interpretation of our circumstances, how we see them, and what attitudes we bring as we look at our circumstances. And so here's an example. I think there's three different ways the people of Judah could respond to their current circumstance. Their nation had been carried away into exile because of their disobedience to God. God has now brought some of them back, and life is hard. They could look at their circumstances and look at themselves and say, you know what, God made it very clear when he talked about exile that part of his goal was repentance of turning back to God, and we haven't. Maybe we need to. That's one possible response. The second one, they could look and say, look how good God is. Our nation disobeyed God. God sent them into exile for 70 years. He's now given us the opportunity to come back. And if these circumstances happen to be the cost of being back in our homeland, the land that God promised us, okay, let's, let's go with it. We're just going to keep going. And then the third option is the one that they chose. Let's blame God. He must have messed up somewhere. Okay, so again, we don't just look at our, respond to our circumstances. We, we respond to our own interpretation of them. And I believe they are looking at their circumstances through this saying. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Now, this isn't the only place you see this saying in operation. You see this idea with Job's friends in the book of Job. In fact, it's the basis for their charge that Job must have done something really bad. They must have sinned badly for all these horrible things to happen to him. And so they start with his circumstances when they get there. And if you've read through the book of Job, which I'll tell you is a hard read. The first part makes sense. And the last part, you can see God challenging Job in the middle part. It's like, oh my goodness, look at all this philosophy. What are they doing philosophizing? Well, here's what they're doing. They're looking at Job's circumstances when they encounter him. He had just in a matter of a week or less lost his children and most of his wealth. And they apply this saying. And so their conclusion, Job, bad things have happened to you, really bad things. So you must have done something very, very bad. So just confess it and get, over, get it over with. And God tells them, you're wrong. You also see this idea in the New Testament with Jesus' disciples. As they are speaking to Jesus about the man born blind, and if you didn't catch it, in front of the man born blind as if he cannot hear them speaking. And they follow the same pattern as Job's friends. They look at the circumstance. The man is blind. That's a bad thing. So they ask the question, who's at fault? Somebody must have done something wrong. Was it the man or his parents? And Jesus' response, you're wrong. Neither of them. There's something else at play. 
Well, life in God's world is much more nuanced than this. As an example, God's grace and mercy do not follow this saying. With God's grace, we are given good that we do not deserve. And with God's mercy, we do not get the bad that we do deserve. And so the people challenge God, and I believe that their challenge with their statement in question is where the people's circumstances and this saying and their interpretation through it come together. Life is hard for many of the people of Judah. It's a lot harder than they want it to be, and for many of them they're saying it's a lot harder than it should be. Now, when the people challenge God, they're not just looking at themselves. I believe they could have any or all of the following in mind. First, they could be looking at the nations around them. They could be thinking of the generations of Jews before them. And they could be thinking of the wicked people in Judah that are not being punished yet. The people of Judah are looking at the surrounding nations, and at least for some of those people in those surrounding nations, they don't have, seem to have the same problems that the Jews do. Life seems to be better for those other people, but they also know that those people don't worship God. And so in terms of that saying, it looks like good things are happening to bad people. Well, we all tend to compare our circumstances with the circumstances of other people. Secondly, people of Judah in Malachi's day could be complaining as well that they are suffering for the sins of the generations of Jews before them, those sins that resulted in the exile and in all of their current misery. And so they could be asking, why am I paying for their sin? And then thirdly, they could be thinking of people in Judah after the return from the exile. So this is current history, just decades, because they're only decades into resettling the land, I believe. We don't know how many. They could be looking at people, Jewish people, after the return of exile that have taken advantage of their fellow Jews. And we know that that happened because we read about it in the book of Nehemiah. And so the people could be looking at those people saying, well, why hasn't God punished them yet? And so with their question and statement, I think the people are saying that God isn't bringing justice when he should. Now, this is not the only place for this kind of thinking. You actually see something similar to it in Psalm 73, where in the beginning of the psalm, the writer is looking at other people, and he says, I can tell just by the way they live, they're disobeying God. But they seem to be doing so well, and I'm struggling. Why, am I having, why is life so hard for me, and why, are they, why is life so easy for them? So this is not the only place that this kind of question gets asked. And again, I believe that the people of Judah basically thought of themselves as being in the right and God not doing what he should. So in a way, the people are asking God, why do evil people have life easy while we who deserve better are still struggling? Well, those people in, in Malachi's day, like all of us, we are all naturally blind to our own sin, and we tend to minimize our own shortcomings. Amen. I'm not perfect, thank you. We're not Baptist, but that's a good Presbyterian amen. More Presbyterians could do that. 
So we tend to say, oh, I'm not perfect, but I don't really deserve all this difficulty I'm going through right now either. So what's going on? Now, you've, I think all of us have heard, most likely, undeserved evil, which you hear in the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But here, today, we have the second part, the problem of undeserved good. Why do good things happen to bad people? And that's what the people are asking. Why are good things happening to bad people especially, and we're not that bad, why aren't we getting some good as well? And so that's the people's challenge to God, and then God responds through Malachi. Now, we read God's response, and God's response may seem a little confusing because God does not answer their challenge directly. God responds by saying he's going to send his messenger and that God himself will come. Now, we know, looking back through history, that that God's messenger will be John the Baptist, and John won't appear for another 400 years or more. But that's the messenger who's preparing the way for the Lord. Then God also says that the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, will come, and that's Jesus, who is God the Son. And we see that in verse 1. By the way, the covenant that Jesus is the messenger for is the new covenant in Jesus' blood, the new covenant relationship. And then we see that Jesus will come suddenly, or you can also use the word unexpectedly. Now, the people in Jesus' day thought the Messiah could come at any time in their day, and they were correct. He could. But if you read the New Testament, what you see is that the people discounted, many of them discounted Jesus because he wasn't the kind of Messiah they wanted. And so in that way, Jesus was unexpected. And then God asked the question, who can endure the day of God's coming? In the Old Testament, the day of God's coming is related to two things. It's related to restoration, and even more so, it is related to God's judgment. Well, the next part of God's response relates to the restoration God says that he will refine and purify, and he uses the example of the refiner's fire and fuller's soap. And we know that refiner's fire in that day was used for metal, things like silver and gold. But this refining that Jesus is doing, the purification, is a spiritual purification. And the result of the purification is that the priests and the people will bring offerings and righteousness And these offerings will be pleasing to God. Well, the only way that this can happen is if the priests and the people have new hearts that love God and seek to obey him. And only God can give us a new heart. And notice, too, God says what he will do, but he doesn't say how he will do it. That's not revealed. The how is not revealed until the New Testament when Jesus comes, and this explains why that word mystery is used in the New Testament by different writers, but especially by Paul, talking about a mystery. So God talks about purification, restoration, and then in verse 5, God says he will come in judgment. And in verse 5, God lists several sins, sorcerers, adulterers, those who lie, and those who oppress other people. And most likely, Those were some of the sins of the people of Judah. They were also 
sins of the surrounding nations. But I think if you were to ask people today, many people today would deny that they are that those sins apply to them. But there's one other sin that God mentions, and it applies to all of us. And that is, he says, we do not fear God. And by that I mean we do not fear God in the right way, and we do not fear God on our own. You see, in the Bible, the word fear does not just mean frightened. Because if we're, when you and I are frightened of a person or of something, we move away. We try to increase the distance. In the Bible, the word fear includes being frightened, but it also includes the idea of awe and respect and obedience. And the result of biblical fear when we fear God is that we want to move toward him. And God says we don't fear him. Well, the lack of fear is also a key factor in those other sins that God mentioned. In the 1500s, the reformers were kind of rediscovering the Bible and the truths of the Bible because they had been obscured by church tradition. And Martin Luther was one of those reformers, and he, talking about the Ten Commandments, said, if you and I break one of commandments two through ten, we've also broken commandment number one at the same time. And commandment number one says that you and I should not have any other God in our life in place of the one true God. Another way to say it is this. You and I are not to love and desire someone or something more than we love and desire God. Notice God does not prohibit us, keep us from loving other people, loving things, enjoying them. But who should be at the top? Who should always be number one? It should be God. And so that lack of fear, that lack of love and obedience to God is the fact why it is that we do all the other things we do. Well, as you look at God's response of restoration and judgment, you'll see that God did answer the people's challenge. But you see, the people saw God's patience with evildoers as a lack of justice and as God ignoring evil. God does not ignore evil, and God never, ever calls evil good. Never. God makes it plain. All evil and disobedience will be punished by God, and so justice will be met. Now, as I was preparing the sermon and looking at various resources, I ran, around, uh, ran into one Old Testament Bible scholar who's talking about this passage and this situation, and he asked this question. Do you really want God's justice? Do you really? Just you and God, and you want God's justice. Better rethink. But there's another point, too, and I think it has to do with the people's misunderstanding. The people of Judah in Malachi's day, I don't think, were looking at life with an eternal perspective. But God always, always works from an eternal perspective. And so God does allow some evil to go unpunished in this life. He does. But he promises that 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 evil will be punished. In fact, God tells us more than once in the New Testament, 
every person will one day stand before God and be judged. When you go back and look at Psalm 73, that was the turning point for the writer. He begins by looking at people who are disobeying God, and he says, God, look, I see how life seems to be good for them and easy for them. Why, why is it so hard for me, and why am I doing all of this? And he even says, I almost went too far and said that out loud to other people. But then God showed him that eternal perspective. And all of a sudden the the writer realized those people who have life so good right now that are disobeying God, if they don't change, oh my goodness, eternity is going to be miserable for them because God does judge. So there's this eternal perspective. So don't make the mistake of minimizing God's judgment, especially since we all deserve God's condemnation. Well, let me try to wrap it up and put all of this in perspective this way, if you put the slide up. You can see first point number one, God wants a people for himself. I shared this in the introduction to Malachi, because what you see as you read through the Bible is that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He says that in some form from the book of Genesis to Revelation. So from the beginning to the end, many times through the Bible, God says, I'm going to have a people for myself. But then we see point number two, the problem. We are all sinful, selfish, and rebellious in our attitudes, our desires, and our actions, though we're not as bad as we could be. But just to be clear what sin is, that's point number three. Sin is any deviation from God's perfect character, any deviation in any direction by any amount. That is sin. And then point number four, God will judge all sin. God will leave no sin unpunished because God is just. Now, if we just look at points two, three, and four, what we see is that God would be just in condemning and eternally punishing all of us. But that's why I started with point number one. In the New Testament, God says before he created the world, he had decided, point number one, that he's going to have a people for himself. So how does he deal with points two, three, and four? Number five, God will rescue some people through Jesus. You see, the only way for the rescue to work and for God to be just is if Jesus is punished for the sins of the people that God wants for himself, and that is just what Jesus did on the cross. He took that sin. And that was the new covenant relationship in Jesus' blood. That's the basis, how it is that we can come to God and that God can have us in his presence and God can love us. And we call this good news, bad news combination, the gospel. And the word gospel is the English version of the Greek word that means good news. And so what we see, starting in Genesis 3, and now here we are in Malachi, the last book, so the first book of the Old Testament, last book of the Old Testament, and in many other places in between, we see yet another pointer to the good news of what God has done and how he loves us. Now, 
Why do you and I need to remember this good news every day? Because in God's plan, those people that he rescues, we still struggle with sin. We still are selfish. We still turn away. And we need that reminder that the rescue is complete. It is done. For his own purposes, God is working in us and lets us have this struggle and also forgives us and works in us to change us so that we don't stay as he found us. So today, let's remember that good news and let's delight in that good news. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you do give good news, that before you'd created the world, you had decided you're going to have a people for yourself. And just as we saw the, the clue with Abraham and was mentioned, you're the one who went through the blood with Abraham with his sacrifice. So that if you or we broke the covenant, and you never did, you would take care of it so you could have a people for yourself. So we thank you for doing that. We thank you for this reminder from the book of Malachi. Thank you that it is, again, even though there's confrontation, there's this picture of mercy because you're calling to your people saying, turn, turn back, turn to life, turn to what is good. And you call us too every day. Lord, help us to see your goodness and to give you thanks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond with the song. I invite you all to stand. We're going to sing Jesus Shall Reign. Jesus shall reign. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till sun shall rise and set no more. Blessings abound. Blessings abound wherever he reigns. The prisoner leaps to lose his chains. The weary find eternal rest. And all the sons of want are blessed. Sing the chorus to our king. To our King be highest praise, rising through eternal days. Just and faithful He shall reign, Jesus shall reign. Let's sing that again to our King. To our King be highest praise, rising through eternal days. Just and faithful He shall reign, Jesus shall reign. People and realms. 
people in realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song and infant voices shall proclaim their early blessings on his name let every creature rise and bring let every creature rise and bring blessing and honor to our king angels descend with songs again and earth repay the loud amen to our king to our King be highest praise, rising from eternal days. Just and faithful He shall reign, Jesus shall reign. To our King. To our King be highest praise, rising through eternal days. Just and faithful He shall reign, Jesus shall reign. Amen. for a couple of announcements. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Go ahead, sit down. <laughs> so, I, what I meant to say was remain standing. It's just all the standing, sitting, standing, sitting kind of thing. So, this morning at 11.30, we have Sunday school, both for adults and for children. Uh, adults meet in here, and the children are in classes down the hallway. Second, we have Life Quest today at 5.30 in the sanctuary, and that is for kindergarten, where's Dan? Through fifth? Okay, kindergarten through fifth, plus or minus a little. And then uh, next Sunday is our regular communion Sunday here, but we're also going to be having communion at uh, Ron and Sue Bossom's at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And you are invited to come, but we ask that if you're interested, and we want you to come, it's a very great encouragement, and if you don't know him, Ron is our former, uh, the founding pastor of Harvester, um, but he's not able to come to the services anymore. So if you would RSVP to the church office, uh, office P- at harvesterpca.org, or talk to uh, Pastor Dan about coming and um, do that, we can take anywhere from about 12 to 16 people total. So please, if you're interested in, in doing that, go ahead and sign up. And then November 6th, uh, we have our fall, what do we call it, kind of a fun day at Belvedere, which is down in Fredericksburg from 2 to 6, and then also some dinner after that. And so see the news bits because the information for that is there. And then finally, one that is not in news bits yet, it's a tentative save the date for November 20th for a community movie night. It'll be here in the church sanctuary, and we're going to be inviting people from the surrounding community come to watch a movie. So that's what we have going on. Please stand for the benediction. 
Now may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace. Sure.